The Republican-controlled House approved a slate of rule changes that were made as concessions in order to win Kevin McCarthy his speaker position. It's Tuesday, January 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, lawyers for President Biden say he's cooperating with investigators looking into classified documents discovered at an institute he founded after serving as vice president. Also this hour, with COVID cases surging in China, American companies are looking for alternate ways to get the consumer goods they need. It's not about replacing. It's about chipping away at it. It's, it's you know, one piece at a time. They're not going to fix this overnight. And why Mass General Hospital is now getting monthly reports on the climate impacts of the anesthetics it's using. We shouldn't be harming the patient in front of us. We shouldn't be harming the patients around us in our communities. Celtics win, mostly sunny in the 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. California is getting its fifth significant storm since the holidays started. Fourteen people have been killed. Flooding, terrific amounts of snow, and sudden river rises are all dangers people face. Another is from powerful winds. Nikki Gofford of Sacramento says her roof caved in after a tree was blown into it. First, a branch hit our house, and then we got up and we're, we're watching outside the window, and both of the trees here are blowing back and forth. Really crazy. So we were debating on whether or not we wanted to stay in the house, and before we could make a decision, both trees fell, one on our house and one on our neighbor's house. The entire city of Montecito, California, has been ordered to evacuate because of the danger of mudslides. Nearly two dozen people were killed there five years ago because of landslides. The House of Representatives has approved a rules package for the new 118th Congress. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, one Republican joined all Democrats to vote against the package. Negotiations on the rules package were central to Kevin McCarthy's dramatic and prolonged bid for House Speaker. McCarthy was able to secure the gavel by brokering a deal to win over a block of holdouts in the far-right faction of his conference. Perhaps most notable among McCarthy's concessions was allowing just one lawmaker to force a vote on ousting the Speaker. Republican Tony Gonzalez of Texas, the lone GOP dissenter, says he has concerns the one-member threshold to recall the Speaker could lead to a nightmare scenario for House Republicans. The vote marked the first legislative test of newly elected Speaker McCarthy's narrow Republican majority. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. The House has also passed its first bill. It strips more than $71 billion from the Internal Revenue Service. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says cutting that funding will increase deficits in the coming decade by more than $100 billion. The democratically controlled Senate is expected to reject the bill. The North American Leaders Summit officially starts today. President Biden has been received at Mexico's presidential palace with pomp and circumstance. NPR's Ader Peralta reports President Biden then held a bilateral meeting with the Mexican leader. The summit began with lots of smiles, and at the beginning of a bilateral meeting, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador quoted Simón Bolívar and asked President Biden to make his dream of a united American continent a reality. President Biden, you hold the key in your hand to open and to substantially improve the relationship among all the countries of the American continent. López Obrador chided the U.S. for not investing enough in the Americas. President Biden responded that the U.S. has a responsibility for the world, not just the Americas. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey met with legislative leaders for the first time since being sworn into office. They discussed a variety of topics, including education, health care, the climate, and tax relief. But as WBOR's Steve Brown tells us, yesterday's meeting was short on specifics. The most definitive statement came from House Speaker Ron Mariano, who said unequivocally the oatmeal cookies served at the meeting were really good. But as far as tackling more thorny issues, the governor said more discussion and information is needed. We've got to see what consensus revenue is. We're taking all of this in. We've all articulated priorities around the relief we want to provide to residents and to folks and and entities across the state. Uh, And we're just going to try to do so. The governor went on to say the administration will work as thoughtfully and strategically as possible in terms of their proposals, but acknowledged that in the end it will come down to what they can collectively work out with the legislature. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. As state gaming regulators try to hammer out details on a betting rollout here, they're looking at what's happened in Ohio. A sports radio personality there lost his job with the Cleveland Browns football team because he allegedly bet on the team. Massachusetts State Gaming Commissioner Bradford Hill says that incident should lead to more of a focus here on potential integrity issues. A red flag went off as a regulator. As as a sports person, I understood it. Not necessarily agreed with it, but understood it. As a regulator, I absolutely agreed with what happened. The commission is in the process of deciding whether or not a handful of online sports books should be allowed to operate in the state. In-person sports betting will begin at the end of this month. Online betting is scheduled to begin in March. The trial of a tea trolley operator involved in a collision on the Green Line gets underway today. He's charged with negligence in the July 2021 crash. A federal report blames a, quote, loss of situational awareness as the likely cause of the collision of the trains along Com Ave. More than two dozen people were hurt. The trolley operator told investigators he may have fallen asleep. He tested negative for alcohol and drugs. A leading human rights activist is accusing a Harvard dean of blocking a fellowship offer over his group's criticism of Israel. Kenneth Roth is the former executive director of Human Rights Watch. He says Harvard Kennedy School dean Douglas Elmendorf blocked the fellowship because of Roth's criticism of Israel's treatment of Palestinians. In a statement, the Kennedy School confirmed Elmendorf passed on Roth's fellowship appointment but did not say why. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Metal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. The Celtics beat the Chicago Bulls 107-99 last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the New Orleans Pelicans tomorrow. Mostly sunny today. It'll be in the upper 30s. Partly cloudy tonight with a low in the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow and back to the upper 30s. We could see some rain and snow Thursday and Friday. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. We're learning more about the shooting at a Virginia elementary school that left one teacher wounded. Police say a six-year-old boy pulled the trigger. 
Newport News police described the teacher as a hero for what she did after she was shot on Friday. But troubling questions are emerging about how to move forward in a case where the suspect is a first grader. Yeah, We're joined by Ryan Murphy of member station WHRO in Norfolk. He's been following this story. Ryan, good morning. You know, it's it's rare, of course, to have such a, a young child shoot a teacher. What are police saying about how he got the gun? Uh, well, Dwayne, we, we learned yesterday uh, from a new briefing from the chief that the boy took the gun from his home. Um, it was his mother's gun. She had mm-hmm. bought it legally. They rolled out some more information, filling in some gaps in the timeline for us. You know, we know he showed up to school with the gun. He pulled it out uh, during class, uh, pointed it at his teacher while she was doing a lesson. You know, there wasn't a fight or a struggle over the gun. He just fired it once, ended up hitting her in the hand and then in the chest. Yeah, this teacher, popular on campus, Abby Zwerner. Uh, what do we know about her condition at this point? Well, her condition it sounds like it's improving. Initially, she was listed with life-threatening injuries. She's now stable. She's apparently talking. Uh, the chief uh, said he'd talked to her a couple of times. Apparently, the first question she had was asking um, how her students were. Yeah. What more have we learned about that uh, six-year-old boy? I mean, rare for such a young child to be involved in such a heinous incident. Yeah, so we didn't learn a whole lot more about him personally, but uh, we do know he was taken into police custody pretty quickly after the the shooting happened. Since then, uh, he's been detained by police. They they put him under a temporary detention order. That's in Virginia the same kind of order they use to get people experiencing mental health crises into into treatment. He's being examined by child psychologists at a medical facility. For the moment, he'll probably be there uh, a couple of days more before they decide where, where to go with this. Yeah, and, and given his age six, how are authorities pursuing this case? Well, it's one of those things the police chief said, we're going to take this slow, um, and they'll be having to have to see what the, the psychologists say once they're done evaluating him. Police chief Steve Drew said that they could bring him in front of a judge after the evaluations are done and the detention order runs out. That seems really unlikely. We've been speaking to some legal experts. They say they've never seen a child this young charged in a case like this. So if he doesn't get taken in front of a judge for charges, there are other options from there. You know, getting the boy um, more mental health services, looking at his home situation, deciding if he needs to be moved elsewhere. You know, the the school superintendent yesterday said there's only been a couple of other cases of kids this young deliberately shooting someone at school. So, you know, getting a resolution in this case uh, is going to be pretty tricky. There's not a whole lot of precedent. Yeah. Ryan Murphy of member station WHRO. Thank you. Thank you. House Republicans came together yesterday to approve new operating rules for Congress that, in spite of the concerns of some Republicans, they feared House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made too many concessions to the right wing of the party in order to obtain his post. McCarthy won the Speaker's gavel Saturday after a grueling 15 rounds of voting over five days. That very public display of Republican disunity has raised questions about McCarthy's power and the ability of Republicans to govern. So what are their prospects going forward? We asked Texas Congressman Keith Self, who initially opposed McCarthy, before changing his mind on Friday. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning. 
Glad to be here. Thank you for being here. I'd love to start with the original reason you opposed McCarthy and then change your vote. My original in intent was to try to change the culture of Congress. Mm. The last few years, we've seen the Speaker rule with an iron fist. Uh, we've seen that there have been no amendments on the floor for six years. Uh, we've seen spending go vertical. We've seen the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that spends money on everything. All of this, regular members of Congress had absolutely no say-so on. And I could see that. And as a freshman congressman, I won't be in leadership. I won't be a committee chair. And I wanted to have some input to how Congress operates. So I thought that this was an excellent exercise for us to claw back some of the authority for regular members of Congress to have some input into what happens. What specific concessions did Speaker McCarthy agree to that ultimately won you over? There are two aspects of this that are particularly attractive to me. The single mm -hmm. issue bills. I mean, there can only be a single issue on a bill. And the second one is the germaneness. Whatever the discussion or amendments that come to the floor, they must be germane to the bill that we are discussing, that we're, we're trying to pass. Of course, I'm delighted in several of the uh, tax issues, uh, the, uh, the supermajority for a tax increase. I'm delighted in that. The dysfunction in the party that was on display last week over the speaker vote, it did raise some questions about whether there will be consistent political gridlock going forward. What do you say to Americans who are worried that basic things just won't get done in Congress, like avoiding default on America's trillions of dollars in debt? That was not uh, discord. That was democracy in action. That was what the House is supposed to look like, debate, discussion, votes until we get it right. Uh, so uh, that's, that's where I stand. One of the handshake concessions was not to allow a debt increase without spending cuts. But that's going to be difficult, nearly impossible in a divided government. Is allowing a debt default off the table this year? A divided government is normally good for the American people. I don't know what we will be able to do, and I'm not going to speculate on what we might be able to do. But this is exactly where we took the House. Uh, we want more debate. We want to address the issues. I think that's true. Having a diversity of opinions and people governing with their constituents in mind, but also times a lot of Americans who support one party or the other get worried about gridlock where nothing gets done. I will tell you, when we've had the government shutdowns in the past, yeah. the people down on Main Street, their lives kept going. Commerce kept moving. Uh, the highways were full. So this is a Washington insider deal, and I, I leave it at that. Unless we, it hurts the American pocketbook. People can't pay for their things, their, their homes, their lives, and that's why I kind of asked about debt default and, and the concerns around that. We're not going to default. That's yeah. not going to happen. Uh, you need to dismiss that idea. We will not default. That would have repercussions around the world. Uh, so we are not going to default. What are your constituents saying? How did they react to watching what happened last week and your decision to hold out and then to vote for McCarthy? Uh, I came to Washington to be a voice and a vote for my constituents. And I believe that I'm doing that and I will continue to be both a voice and a vote for Congressional District 3 in Texas. 
How has it been as in your first week? Well, as you know, it was pretty wild and pretty yeah. crazy, but I think that was democracy in action. And I think at the end of the day, we got uh, some things that will change the culture of Congress. Texas freshman Congressman Keith Self, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Texas Christian University has an enrollment of some 12,000 students, and that's about a third of the University of Georgia's student body. So it was more than a little surprising that the TCU football program made it all the way to the national championship. Last night's battle set up a classic David and Goliath scenario, but in this case, Goliath won. It's my honor to present the national championship trophy once again to Coach Kirby Smart and the Georgia Bulldogs. Georgia went into the game undefeated and became the first team to win back-to-back national championships in 10 years. And really, it wasn't even close. Final score, TCU 7, Georgia 65. They just kept on scoring. Bennett gets a block. Georgia draws first blood. McCockey's wide open. Touchdown, dogs. Bennett keeping all the way and just sauntering into the end zone. Milton, no problem. Georgia overpowering TCU. Mitchell, one-handed catch for a touchdown. Bowers, touchdown. McCockey with another touchdown catch. A touchdown. Branson Robinson one more time, and the freshman just scoots in. That's ESPN's Chris Fowler seeming to lose a little steam there after calling Mm -hmm. Georgia's ninth touchdown of the evening. Yeah, Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett was the game's most valuable player for the offense. He threw four touchdowns and rushed for a couple as well. Unbelievable team performance. I love this team. I love those fans. I love our band. I love everybody. Back to back, baby. Back to back. Bennett started his college career with no scholarship and no clear path to becoming a starter. Now, in his final year, he's a Heisman Trophy finalist and a two-time national champion. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, even after going on strike and winning an increase in wages, staffers and grad students at the University of California are still dealing with housing and food insecurity problems. Listen to that story and more by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, American Alpine skier Michaela Schifrin has tied Lindsey Vaughn's record for the most race wins in Women's World Cup history. It's 719. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. 
ChatGPT is one of the most sophisticated AI chatbots ever released. A high school teacher says it writes better than some students. There was a paragraph of eight sentences, and it was a mess. And I took that paragraph and I put it into ChatGPT, and ChatGPT made it shine. But what happens when we can't tell the difference between computer and human-generated writing? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Here's some of the news we're tracking today. The Biden administration plans to unveil a new student loan repayment program that would cut payments for half of undergrad borrowers. But a funding problem may already put that plan in jeopardy. Plus, residents demand answers after Cambridge police shoot and kill a 20-year-old man. Those stories and more today on 90.9 WBUR and at WBUR.org. In your forecast, mostly cloudy skies gradually clear today for a sunny day with a high near 38. Tonight, some clouds return and temperatures fall to a low around 24. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 34. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world, with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown. And I'm Leila Faldil. A 27-year-old American is very likely to soon become the most decorated alpine skier of all time. Michaela Schifrin won her 82nd World Cup race on Sunday in Slovenia. I'm do- in doing so, she tied Lindsey Vonn's career record of 82 wins, the most for any woman ever on the World Cup circuit. Schifrin's closing in on the men's record as well. But in the middle of it all, she says she's fighting anxiety, grief, and loss. Here's Schifrin right after her 82nd win on Sunday. I wish I could go back to a time when I could share it with more of the people that I love. And I have a feeling right now like something bad is going to happen because the last time I had momentum like this was the season before my Nana died and my dad died. Reporter John Henderson is covering the events. Now he's in Austria, where more World Cup races are scheduled to take place today. He spoke with our co-host, A. Martinez. All right, John, so 82 World Cup wins. Give us a sense of how big of a deal this is. So Schifrin is 27. Lindsey Vonnen was 34 when she quit. So she's got seven years on her. Also, keep in mind, Schifrin is only four away from the all-time record of Ingemar Stenmark's 86. So she'll soon top all the skiers in history. In addition, she's done this in all the disciplines, slalom, giant slalom, super G, downhill, parallel slalom combined. Stenmark did all 86 of his wins in slalom and giant slalom. And the thing about it too, John, is that, I mean, at 27, that's the athletic prime for most athletes in most sports. And so she's, I mean, right in the perfect time to be able to, to attain these records and possibly break them. What has she had to overcome to even get here, though? Well, it's the, the big thing was three years ago, her father died. 
He died in a tragic home accident right in the middle of her season in February. He was her rock. Her mom was her coach, but her father was her confidant. Well, when he died, she flew back from Europe and she fell apart. And then the second thing happened was last year at the Olympics. She had six races. She was favored in the slalom and a medal favorite in the giant slalom. She didn't win a single medal. She had three did not finishes and she'd only had two others in her entire career. So she had to overcome this horrible Olympics in front of the world. But this off season, she had a complete attitude turnaround. She said, just because you fail doesn't mean you're a failure. So what she did, she stopped worrying about winning and started focusing just on her technique and the race itself and the tactics. And then once she stopped worrying about winning, she started to win again. And what's amazing is she's doing this now, winning all these races. And she said, if she just thinks about winning at the start gate, she won't win. Which, John, I guess, I mean, considering how close she is to all of these records, I mean, it should set her up for an easy an easy next few months to, to break them, right? Well, not really. I was in Kronskogori to watch her tie Lindsey Vaughn's record of 82 wins, and I had a chance to talk to her a little bit afterwards. Here's what she said. I feel quite nervous, which is actually not a good feeling. This, this stress that I have in my body right now is not very good, but... My skiing was really strong. You would think that someone that is so close to these amazing records would be more well-known, especially in America, because, as you know, John, America loves their sports winners. Skiers in Europe are rock stars. They're mobbed everywhere. Even with me, I've, I was in Slovenia for the last, uh, last three days, and even coming up to Austria, every time everybody, anybody saw me as an American or learned I was American, um, they asked me if I was here to see Michaela Schifrin. Everybody knows her. She was mobbed everywhere in Slovenia. So she's very well known in Europe also because skiing is televised everywhere. And it's not in America. In America, skiing comes around every four years for two weeks and then disappears. I think with this record is going to put her more in the, in the public eye. For NPR, that's reporter John Henderson. John, thanks. You bet. My pleasure. Americans waste more than a third of the food that's available to them. Zung Lewis hosts the YouTube cooking channel Honeysuckle and has some suggestions. Just being more resourceful with what you have, I think, and being creative with what you have is a skill that I think a lot of us kind of underutilize. Lewis says it's about more than just eating all your leftovers. It's about other choices we make. If you're doing a recipe that requires a lemon and you don't have one, Substitute it with an acid that you already have in the pantry, like vinegar, because it kind of does the same thing. It may not have the same like flavor profile, but more than not, it works. <laughs> Lewis says we should also use more of the vegetables we buy. For example, broccoli. People end up using just the crowns where the stem is perfectly edible too. Same with carrot. If you buy them at the farmer's market, you typically get carrot tops, but those make a wonderful stir fry. Another way to cut vegetable waste? give them a second life by pickling them. If they don't look perfect, you end up thinking they're not good, but pickling them is such an ancient way of preserving vegetables that we in modern day don't think about. And that's something that I've started doing a lot more in my kitchen. 
Emmy Cho hosts the YouTube channel Emmy Made. She says keeping track of what's in your fridge can also help. Simply labeling what it is that's there, I can say, oh, I've got rice, I've got onions, I've got a little bit of leftover chicken, I'm going to make fried rice. Or just because I can get a really quick assessment of what is there. Cho says time spent in Japan and a smaller refrigerator suggested a new way to think about food prep. It's more like, what are we going to have for dinner today? And then you go buy those ingredients rather than what do I have in the refrigerator? Food for thought. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we'll wrap up the winners, the losers, and the highlights from tonight's Golden Globe ceremony. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, hundreds of people have been arrested following the riots at the Brazilian Congress and Supreme Court. President Biden says Brazil's president has his full support. And rising COVID case numbers in China have American companies reconsidering their dependence on that country. It's 729. New year, new food. WBUR City Space continues its curated cuisine series in 2023 with chefs talking about their craft and, usually, hopefully, sharing a bite to eat. On January 30th, we have Boston-based Tiffany Faison. Then on February 6th, it's Ming Tsai, who you may have seen on PBS. Get info and tickets at wbuarnorg slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource a proud sponsor of MassSave. Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Most of California is under advisories and warnings as stormy weather continues to move through the state. The National Weather Service has issued flood watches in areas that include Sacramento and Fresno. Winter storm warnings are in effect in the Sierra Nevada, where more heavy snow is expected. At least 14 deaths in California are now blamed on the recent string of storms. Migration and border security are expected to be major topics today when President Biden sits down with the president of Mexico and Canada's prime minister. They're attending the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City. The former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization is being sentenced today in New York. NPR's Ilya Merritt says Alan Weisselberg is expected to receive several months behind bars. A jury convicted the Trump Corporation in December after Weisselberg spent days in the witness box. He said Donald Trump personally signed tuition checks for his grandkids to attend private school. Weisselberg then repaid Trump and recorded the payments in a ledger. This was just one of an array of tax evasion schemes. Weisselberg said the company tried to clean up after Donald Trump was elected president. Under the terms of a plea agreement, Weisselberg is likely to serve only a few months in prison. Trump's businesses will learn the extent of their fines at the end of this week. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News from Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Cambridge plans to hold two special public meetings to talk about the police shooting of a 20-year-old man. Saeed Faisal was shot and killed by an officer last week. At a city council meeting last night, Cambridge Mayor Sambal Siddiqui addressed Faisal's family and friends in her remarks. My heart breaks with you. Know that I hear you and your demands for accountability and change. I understand it feels as though the city you've called home has failed you. And so far as I've, I'm able to repair this break, please know that I'm committed to doing so. Police say Faisal charged at them with a large knife and refused to drop it before he was shot. His friends say he appeared to be having a mental health crisis and had no criminal background. Later this week, a special panel on Beacon Hill will look at two close House elections. The winners in both races won by extremely narrow margins, one by seven votes, the other by a single vote. The votes were so close that the winners haven't yet been inaugurated. Lawmakers want more time to make sure the vote counts were handled properly. The declared winners and losers of both elections will testify before the panel on Friday. City leaders in Northampton are considering a cap on the number of pot shops. There are already 11 dispensaries in the city of less than 30,000 residents. Counselors tell Mass Live they want to cap the number at 12, with some minor exceptions. A council subcommittee deadlocked on whether to support the plan. It will now head to the entire city council. It's 7:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish. Counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Make it three wins in a row for the Celtics. They beat the Chicago Bulls 107-99 last night at the Garden. The Seas play again tomorrow when they host the New Orleans Pelicans. Skies will clear throughout the day today, and by this afternoon, we should see some sun. The high will be in the upper 30s. Tonight, cloudy with a low in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly cloudy. The high will be in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. President Biden says Brazil's leader has his full support after thousands of rioters ransacked government offices. Sunday's rampage by supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro exposed the political and social fault lines in Brazil. NPR's Carrie Khan reports from Brasilia. Workers were already making repairs Monday from the damage done by the rioters just one day before. 
With small hammers, they tapped rocks into gaps in the stone walkway leading up to the bright entrance of Brasilia's presidential offices. The pathway was torn up by Bolsonaro's supporters. They used the stones to break windows and damage offices in the Capitol, targeting the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the offices of the president. Upon seeing the destruction, 21-year-old Pablo Fonche says, I'm filled with rage. I find it revolting. Revolting, he said. He's an education student and social activist who came from Rio de Janeiro for the inauguration of leftist President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. For me, Lula is the best politician that exists on our planet, he says. Ponchis chokes up, remembering the joy he felt just one week ago at Lula's inauguration. Everyone hoped, he said, the voices of young people, black people like him, and the poor would be heard again. <sighs> and now he says it's too much to bear seeing the plaza destroyed by a group who only wants to defend Bolsonaro's nationalism under the banner of God, homeland, and family. Across town, the mood is very different. Dozens of soldiers clean out the encampment, which up until Sunday was used by Bolsonaro's supporters ever since his October election defeat. I don't want to say anything because Brazil is a little bit complicated nowadays. This Bolsonaro supporter would not give his name and would only describe himself as a 43-year-old English teacher. Like the thousands who have been camping here in front of Brasilia's army headquarters, he believes the false claims that the election was stolen. He too had hoped that peaceful protesters could convince the army to intervene and reinstate the former president. But once they committed crime, destroying buildings and things that people were not supposed to do, they lost their reason. Yesterday, Brazil's newly appointed justice minister, Flavio Gino, told reporters that the hundreds of rioters would be prosecuted. And he vowed to find those who financed them, too. President Lula called for a return to normalcy and unity. Given the great divisions in Brazil right now, that will be a tall order. For the young Lula supporter, Pablo Fonches, now is not the time to give up the fight. We will once again get our moment of hope, he says, once all these violent rioters are properly prosecuted. Not so, says the Bolsonaro supporter who declined to give his name. He says his fellow protesters' first plan may not have succeeded. Asking the army to take command didn't work. He insists, though, they won't give up. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Brasilia. There's growing evidence that China is experiencing a massive COVID surge. This belated wave of sickness in mostly unvaccinated China could have major economic consequences, not just for China, but for the world. The U.S., like much of the world, relies on Chinese-made goods and parts. So what effect is that having on small businesses here? Are they feeling the pinch? And how are they planning for it? You can look at it either as it's going to you know, make your head explode, or you could say it's a game and I'm going to win. That's William Balash. He runs a third-party logistics company called Shipping Solutions Consultants by Quandry. That's based out of New York. Yes, it is frustrating. It is stressful for the customers. My job is to get it done so that to relieve that stress. 
Our co-host A. Martinez talked with Balash, whose business model relies on Chinese-made goods. William, what would you say is the number one way the pandemic has affected your business and your work? Just um, being able to uh, provide solutions that others can't and, and getting things moved. When this whole thing started with the whole lockdown, if a business had an online presence, an e-commerce presence, they were very successful. If they didn't, it didn't matter how big or how small they were, they were out of business. So there were some companies that did very well because they, they were already positioned for that. What would you say was the number one challenge for you when dealing with shipments out of China? Getting the shipments out because they put caps on the delivery and also the, the customs paperwork where they started to go a little uh, you know, restrictive, where they would just turn shipments around if the paperwork wasn't done properly and send it back to its uh, country of origin. And now you have to go through paperwork to get it back over again. So that might take you a month to get your shipment. So how might this current COVID surge in China impact you and your business? If the factories are shut down, you can't get anything out from those factories. If the factories are operating, there's a way to get those shipments out. This is an ongoing thing. This is long before COVID. This issue with China, with shipments and, and everything has been going on. There's been a lot of movement along the way to move business out of China. When uh, Donald Trump imposed the additional taxes, some businesses figured out there was time for them to move to other countries. So what I have seen over the last few years is that more shipments are coming out of other countries, Asian countries, as opposed to China, because they figured out that China is, it's always been a big mess, but they never had a, a, a reason or, you know, or maybe a way or whatever it was to move their operations. So they have been moving to other countries and that has helped facilitate some of it. There are plenty of countries that are reaching out to the United States for manufacturing. They're saying, listen, we've got locations, we've got beautiful islands, we've got you know, great locations, and we, ha we want to do manufacturing, come to our island and, and, and work with us. So that's, that's what's been going on over the last couple of years as well. But is China just too big of a giant in manufacturing for any country or even a collection of countries to replace it? Well, it's not about replacing. It's about chipping away at it. It's, it, it's, it's you know, one piece at a time. It's, you're not going to fix this overnight. I feel like I've been hearing that for, for decade after decade. we got to stop relying on China. And, but it just never seems to happen. What, what do you think is, is the reason for that, for, for not being able to at least seemingly head in the direction of a clean break at some point? Well, first of all, we're not, you're never going to stop because we're not, we're not quitters. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's a matter of replacing. It's a matter of changing it one piece at a time. That's shipping and logistics consultant, William Balash. William, thanks a lot. You're welcome. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, why Mass General Hospital's plan to go green now includes keeping track of the anesthetics used in surgeries. And in our next hour, a bill that would have reduced one of the most persistent racial disparities in criminal justice has failed to advance in the Senate. It'll gradually become sunny today and we'll have temperatures in the upper 30s. Some clouds move in tonight and it falls to the mid-20s. Partly sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. A chance of rain and snow on Thursday in the upper 40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 743.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team. Now in business news, Cambridge-based Voyager Therapeutics has a new deal with a San Diego biotech worth up to $4 billion. The gene therapy startup is partnering with Neurocrine Biosciences to create a new gene therapy for Parkinson's disease. The deal comes with $175 million up front and an option to split the profits from the new drug. The Swiss banking firm Credit Suisse is close to reaching a deal that will allow it to revive its CS First Boston brand. Several reports say Credit Suisse will acquire the New York-based firm M. Klein & Co. for a few hundred million dollars. The deal will allow Klein stakeholders to take an eventual stake in CS First Boston using proceeds from the sale. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The gas you exhale during a three-hour surgery could have the same global warming effects as driving a car a long distance. That's because some anesthetic gases trap more heat than others. So at Massachusetts General Hospital, the plan to go green now includes monthly reports sent to doctors and nurses who deliver anesthesia showing the climate impact of their care. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains how it works. Considering the global warming potential when choosing a gas that will put a patient to sleep before surgery or wake them up after is pretty new. Take nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas. It's a greenhouse gas, but Dr. Yasmin Tamizi didn't learn that during her training at Mass General. In fact, senior anesthesiologist urged her to use nitrous to revive patients. When I was a resident, which was not that long ago, Tamizi finished in 2019. I was thought that these were the most beautiful wake-ups ever and you should master how to do them. But now, after learning that the global warming potential of nitrous oxide is nearly 300 times that of carbon dioxide, Tamizi is shelving that wake-up technique and using a more climate-friendly gas. She's also reducing the flow or how much gas she gives patients. That's another trained habit she's trying to break. My flows are still not as as low as they could be, I guess, but it's hard. It is very hard. I always get dinged on that. Dinged in the performance reports Tamizi receives that show how she compares to other members of Mass General's anesthesia staff on several measures. Anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists have already been getting patient quality reports To help reduce its carbon footprint, MGH has added two climate-focused scores, what gas clinicians use and how much. I think I'm doing pretty okay. (laughs) Liz Faber, a nurse anesthetist at Mass General, 
was also a frequent nitrous oxide user before she started seeing how her work contributed to climate change. You certainly don't need to do it to emerge a patient safely from anesthesia, so I've simply stopped doing it. Which will likely have an impact at Mass General. Anesthesia gases are 43% of the hospital's current greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that's because MGH has already taken steps to reduce emissions, like getting most of the hospital's power from wind. While anesthesia gases are significant for this hospital, they're a tiny piece of global warming overall. So initially, Faber had questions about focusing on gas use. Is this going to solve all of our problems? But I guess if I think of it in context, like, I compost. I try to ride my bicycle. Like, these are just another small step that, if enough people take that on, can make a difference. Which brings us to a recurring climate action debate. Does changing a few things individuals or institutions do really matter? Not much, argues Harvard University climate scientist Dan Schrag. This is too big a problem, and it's a collective problem. It's the entire world. Schrag, who runs Harvard's Center for the Environment, says doctors and nurses could likely have a bigger impact by pushing for major policy changes and educating patients about the health effects of climate change. And personally, if I was on the operating table... I'd want my anesthesiologist to worry only about my health and safety and, frankly, disregard any concerns about greenhouse gas emissions. We've been very clear that the first priority is taking care of the patient. Dr. Lucy Everett, a leader on the Climate Anesthesiology Project, says anesthesia that is better for the environment is often better for the individual patient. And if it isn't, clinicians should use whatever's best for each case. But they should at least consider the climate impact of their choices, says Dr. Jonathan Sletzman, because the mission is to deliver the best care with the least harm for all patients. Look, we are the only profession that has a moral imperative not to be hurting people. Sletzman directs the Center for the Environment and Health at Mass General. We shouldn't be harming the patient in front of us. We shouldn't be harming the patients around us in our communities. Sletzman says anesthesiology teams are leading by example so that when they talk to patients or policymakers about ways to slow climate change, they can show it can be done. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Um, so, uh, uh, Carrie Greenwich, she's a historian from Tufts University. Absolute tour de force. Some of our listeners may remember her from our historians panel last week, actually, where we looked at what history could teach us to expect from 2023. So she has this new book out, and I think you've heard of these Grimke yeah. sisters, right? Yeah. I'm a history buff and was in uh, Charleston, North, uh, South Carolina, and that's where they lived. The house is preserved there. Exactly. So they end their story and their lives in Boston. In fact, there's a bridge named after them in Hyde Park. Mayor Marty Walsh, former Mayor Marty Walsh, named it after them. Famous suffragists and abolitionists, mm-hmm. right? So these two white sisters. So what Greenidge does is go back and tell their story again, but also telling the stories of all the intersecting lives, um, especially the intersecting lives of enslaved people because they came from a family that enslaved people, Mm -hmm. as well as free blacks in Philadelphia and Boston who were engaged in the same movements. And it paints an incredible 
picture of the time and tells that story with a clearer eye. Mm. Yeah. And the overall thing of how many enslaved people were actually owned by women. Yeah. A fascinating story, Rupa. Just can't wait. I'll be listening. Thank you. Thanks. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.51. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. I'm Dwayne Brown. And I'm A. Martinez. Nothing warms the bones and the soul quite like a hearty bowl of chili. Today, we're fixing to bring you a chili recipe that'll tantalize your taste buds and, if you're a hardcore Texas chili maker, get you to raise one of those eyebrows. Our recipe comes from Jack Bishop of the PBS television show America's Test Kitchen. This is a plant-based chili. For people who love meaty chili but are trying to eat less meat, I promise you when you're done with this, if you were to serve this to someone, they would think it was beef. Jack's recipe has enough taste and texture to satisfy the most carnivorous carnivore. Now, the biggest surprise was that I was able to make it at home without burning down my kitchen. You're going to stir it occasionally, so if you've got a spatula or a wooden spoon. How about that? That, that, that looks good. Um, I mean, it's really a pancake turner, but we're going we're gonna to give you a pass <laughs> on that. It's what I got, Jack. It's what I got. I was in Los Angeles while Jack kept an eye on me from a safe distance. He was in Boston watching over Zoom. We began by sauteing onions, garlic, chili powder, and tomatoes. So, so far, Jack, there is nothing different with what we are doing if this were a meat chili, a real meat chili. Part of that is using all the familiar flavors, right? So that the final product is something that's familiar yet a little different. Here comes the different part. We added plant-based meat from the company Beyond Meat. Jack says you can also use veggie meat from Impossible Foods. So we've done taste tests here in the test kitchen, and uh, the Impossible and the Beyond are our two favorites. They do the best job of replicating the texture and the meaty, savory flavor of ground beef. So Jack, when we did our segment, now how many months ago, we were doing burgers, plant-based burgers for 4th of July. So on that day, that was my first plant-based meal, and I have not looked back. It has been plant-based every single day since. Wow. And are you feeling better? You know what? It took a few months because I don't think the change happened right away. I feel cleaner inside, if that makes any sense. It might be in my head, Jack. It might not be. It might be something real, but I feel like I am cleaner inside than I ever have been in my whole life. Well, I can't imagine that, like, when we first talked that I was going to have so much impact on your life. I mean, it's it's a little bit of an awesome responsibility at this point. I don't know what's going to happen after this segment. We have now come to the part of our story that might be hard to swallow for chili makers in the Lone Star State. That's because our next ingredient will never, ever be found in any bowl of chili that's served deep in the heart of Texas. We're going to add a 15-ounce can of red kidney beans. Beans in chili? Yep, them's fighting words. All right, I'm going to just stipulate 
to everyone who's listening in Texas and the, the fact that we just added beans, you know, okay, I know we're in trouble because um, in Texas, it's, it's about the meat, but, you know, in a plant-based chili, we only put four ounces of the plant-based meat in there. And so we need more protein. And so we're adding the red kidney beans in here. Fully acknowledging this is the direction that we went. Hope you're okay with this. I mean, I'm okay with it. Uh, my wife, who is from the Midland Odessa area of West Texas. And when I put the beans in there, I looked around to make sure that, uh, <laughs> that she wasn't looking. And uh, what does this look like to you, Jack? A roadside diner in West Texas? My goodness. I think the only place where I think people can get themselves in trouble, if we were to call this Texas chili, then we'd be in trouble, right? I mean, you know, um, because it's not. But we didn't, we're not calling this Texas chili. We're just calling it weeknight meaty chili. Don't you put no beans in my chili. Don't you put no beans in my chili. If you put beans in my chili, you don't know beans about making chili. Weeknight meaty chili is one of the recipes in a new book from America's Test Kitchen. It's called Vegan Cooking for Two. It features more than 200 dishes designed for committed vegans, as well as folks who might be, como se dice, veggie curious. When it comes to trying to introduce plant-based dishes to other people, do you have to let people know exactly what you are going to give them? Because my, my mom, my dad, and my brother, they won't do it. And I think in the few months that I have been enjoying plant-based eating that they wouldn't know the difference if i gave them say a fried crispy chicken sandwich that was made out of a plant-based patty they, I, they would not know the difference so is it okay for me to just give them something and not tell them and have them love it or should i tell them beforehand probably the most important thing is to make sure that you're aware of any allergies or food sensitivities right my, my dad is allergic to anything new well I'm of the school of telling people and making it a challenge. Do a taste test. Do the, the meat-based version and the plant-based version, but don't tell them which one is which. Kind of gamify it a little bit, because that may be a way to get people to overcome their fears. How does that sound? All right. That's the honorable way to go. I have no honor, Jack, so that's why <laughs> with my parents and my brother, I might just force it on them and see what happens. Keep What's going on in your skillet? I'm just kind of curious. I don't, you know, I want to make sure we're paying attention to the cooking. It's, it smells great. It smells great. It looks great. I mean, it's almost screaming, eat me now. Uh, all right. Why don't you take a little taste and see if it needs any salt and pepper? All right, here you go. Man, this works. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it, Jack. This works. It really works. You cooked it. That's the big thing. I, I'm, I'm shocked to have this weeknight meaty chili turn out as well as it did i'm thrilled I'm, I'm so happy i'm so happy and i'm and aside from that i get to eat it too so that that makes me even more happy well i'm thrilled i feel as your coach i've done my job well jack uh thank you so much for taking me through uh weeknight meaty chili from the book uh, vegan cooking for two 200 plus recipes for everything you love to eat thank you very much you're welcome and thank you. Don't you put no beans in my chili. Don't you put no beans in my chili. Jack Bishop hosts the PBS television show America's Test Kitchen. Don't put no beans in my chili.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Dwayne Brown. And I'm Layla Falden. You don't know beans about making Texas chili. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republicans in the U.S. House have passed new rules demanded by ultra-conservatives that make it harder to raise taxes or spend federal money. It's Tuesday, January 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, residents in the Ukrainian port of Odessa are finding ways to adapt after Russian strikes left most of the city without power. city does not give up. So, something working, even on generators, you can always find a good shawarma. Also this hour, a federal oil and gas lease sale in Alaska has attracted only one buyer, a sign that energy companies might be shifting their priorities. It's going to be very difficult to change the direction that the country is going in now in terms of moving toward a more sustainable energy environment. And strong storms cause flooding and force people to evacuate in Northern California. Celtics win, mostly sunny in the 30s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House has voted to pass a rules package governing how Republicans will run the chamber. Texas Republican Chip Roy says the package is necessary. This rules package is a rules package that reflects this body the entirety of the Republican Party on making sure that we restore the people's house. But Democrats, like Washington Representative Pramila Jayapal, objected. After a week of chaos, we now have a rules package for mega extremists attacking our freedoms and every major responsibility of this body, from paying America's bills to funding our government. Republicans say the rules will help them seek necessary government spending cuts, but that's raised worry there could be dramatic cuts to defense spending, too. President Biden meets with his counterparts from Canada and Mexico today. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City comes as the three nations are trying to boost manufacturing on the continent. The pandemic and all the supply chain disruptions associated with it drove home that the U.S. and its neighbors were too dependent on China for critical things like microchips. A big part of today's summit will focus on increasing cooperation and boosting manufacturing in North America. The meeting got off to something of a bumpy start when Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, tweaked Biden over a lack of U.S. focus on the Western Hemisphere at the start of their bilateral meeting last night. The comments came during a brief greeting in front of the press when normally leaders just exchange pleasantries. But instead, they exchanged mild barbs. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Mexico City. President Biden's personal lawyers say a, quote, small number of classified documents was discovered last November in offices Biden once used when he was vice president. 
The lawyers turned these documents over to the National Archives. NPR has learned Attorney General Merrick Garland has assigned the matter to the U.S. attorney in Chicago, who was appointed during the Trump administration. An elementary school teacher in Virginia is recovering after she was shot by a six-year-old student. But the next step for the child is not clear. From member station WHRO, Ryan Murphy has more. Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew said officials are taking this case slowly. This is an unprecedented situation that we're dealing with. A six-year-old. It is unprecedented. So there are some nuances here. For now, the boy is being evaluated by child psychologists at a medical facility. Then, officials will discuss whether to bring him in front of a judge or figure out what services the boy should receive. Legal experts say it's unlikely a child this young would face charges. His parents, however, could. The boy took the 9mm handgun from his home. It was purchased legally by his mother. But Virginia law says guns must be secured so that children can't get to them. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Murphy in Norfolk. You're listening to NPR News. California is getting hit with the latest round of monster storms. Torrential rain is falling on the state that's already gotten four significant storms in a row. There's nowhere for this new water to go. The entire city of Montecito, California, has been ordered to evacuate because of the danger of mudslides. Nearly two dozen people were killed there by mudslides five years ago. In Iran, the daughter of former President Akbar Hashemi Rasanjani has been sentenced to five years in prison. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Iranian media say she was indicted last year on charges of propaganda against the system. Faize Hashemi was arrested last September for allegedly inciting riots. The arrest came during the protests sparked by the death of a young woman in the custody of Iran's morality police. Hashemi's lawyer announced her prison sentence on Twitter. Hashemi had previously been arrested and sentenced to jail back in 2012 for what the government called anti-state propaganda during the protests that followed the disputed presidential contest of 2009. In August of last year, Hashemi released a video message calling on Iranian reformers to speak out, urging them to, quote, oppose, speak, declare a position, criticize wherever necessary. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The privately owned company Virgin Orbit attempted to launch a rocket carrying satellites from England yesterday. It failed. A jumbo jet carrying the rocket took off. The rocket ignited as expected, but mission managers say then there was an anomaly. The rocket did not reach orbit. The satellites could not be released, and the mission managers say they were lost. I'm Corva Coleman. NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey says the topic of tax relief came up at yesterday's leadership meeting at the State House, but she says no decisions on the matter have been made. Healey says further discussions will be needed, including with Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. The LG and I will work to do so um, as, you know, as thoughtfully and as strategically as, as possible in terms of what, what we propose. And um, uh, I know that at the end of the day, it's going to come down to, to what we collectively see is, and what members see is, is the right way to go. Healy says before proposing any tax relief, she has to see what the state's projected revenue is for the upcoming fiscal year. Another topic that came up at that meeting yesterday was Free Community College. Healy mentioned her support for it during her inauguration speech. Senate President Karen Spilka also supports the idea, but she has different ideas on how to execute it. But House Speaker Ron Mariano isn't ready yet to commit to either plan. Well, there's two, two separate proposals, and so now the devil is in the details as we begin to discuss 
you know, there's a cost involved. We have to ascertain what the costs are. There's a whole lot of questions that have to be answered about it. Yesterday's meeting was Healy's first with Mariano and Spilka since taking office. A federal judge is upholding the decision to require Worcester to pay a man wrongly imprisoned for 16 years. A civil jury awarded Nat Consensa $8 million last year. He says he was convicted on burglary charges with evidence fabricated by police. His conviction was later vacated. The Telegram and Gazette reports the city of Worcester wanted either a new trial or the ruling to be set aside. A judge rejected that yesterday, although the city can still appeal. The calendar may read January 10th, but it's never too early to think about summer. This morning, the Steamship Authority has opened its reservations portal for the summer travel season to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. Today's reservations are only open to people in the Authority's Head Start program. Everyone else has to wait until Tuesday. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. The Celtics topped the Chicago Bulls 107-99 last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the New Orleans Pelicans tomorrow. Mostly sunny today. It'll be in the upper 30s. Partly cloudy tonight with a low in the 20s. Partly sunny tomorrow and back to the upper 30s. We could see some rain and snow Thursday and Friday. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. Hundreds of thousands of Californians lost power and tens of thousands have fled their homes. Major highways are closed up and down the state this morning due to flooding. California is in the middle of its fifth major storm since Christmas, and more storms are on the way. Here's California's state climatologist, Michael Anderson. These are interesting events in that each and individually, not all that awe-inspiring in terms of, oh my gosh, that's a monster storm. It's the fact that you're just having so many of them with little break in between them. Joining us from Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco, is KQED reporter Danielle Venton. Well, Danielle, it's been a wet night and morning up and down the state. How are these storms affecting folks where you are? Here in Sonoma County, we've had people die from falling trees, people rescued from getting their vehicles stuck in water, hundreds of millions of dollars in damage to roads. And we've had a lot of people who live along the Russian River, which for decades has been a hotspot for flooding damage in the western U.S., be displaced. I visited with some of these people to hear what they've been going through. I met Lewis Britton, who lives in an RV in a town called Guerneville on the banks of the Russian River. In the area that I live, floods at 30 feet. So, yeah, so I was like, well, I guess it's time to go. He's part of a group of evacuees who live in RVs or trailers who have come to a private park. It's really a kid's playground. There's about 50 people, including about 20 children, and they've been living here for the last few days because where they normally park their homes, it's just too dangerous. They're getting support from the county, such as food and water, and they've moved in porta-potties. Yeah, Danielle, we know this area of Northern California is also where burn scar, lots of fires have happened. 
the rains are affecting folks throughout the state now. What are you hearing from other parts of California? Well, there's a 34-mile levee along the Cosumnes River near Sacramento that saw several breaches during the New Year's Eve storm. There's a lot of nervousness that it could breach again and flood nearby land and homes. Elsewhere, we're seeing serious floods with water inundating homes in the Santa Cruz area, for example, a much-beloved pier and wharf were destroyed. And of course, more recently, farther south, parts of Santa Barbara and the entire town of Montecito received orders to evacuate immediately Monday afternoon. And five years ago there, during similarly heavy rains, a huge debris float killed more than 20 people. And of course, that's what officials fear could happen again and what these evacuations are meant to guard against. At least if landslides happen, people won't be there this time. And in Los Angeles County, authorities issued a flash flood warning. Some of the places affected include Long Beach, Malibu, Beverly Hills, downtown. Lots of roads and highways are closed this morning due to mudslides and debris in the road. Oh, my goodness. Last night, the winds were so strong, Danielle, here in Southern California in L.A. County, that uh, not only did you feel it, but it sounded like uh, maybe there was more going on than just heavy rain and wind. We've seen, of course, um, a serious drought over the years. How is all this affecting that? Are we moving out of it? Well, it's a little complicated. I mean, these rains are causing huge problems, but they're also really helpful for our water supply. It's going to take a couple months before we know how our supplies are looking going into summer. All right. That's KQED's Danielle Vinton. Thank you. Thank you. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, the southern city of Odessa, with its beaches and ports, was known for tourism and shipping. But the ports are all but shuttered, tourism has slowed, and Russian strikes on the power grid have left many businesses in the dark. NPR's Tim Mack takes us there. The front door to Yaroslav Trofimov's jazz club was unlocked when I arrived. Yaroslav? Yes, I'm here. Oh. Go downstairs. Go downstairs, okay. Yes. I'm here with the light. It's good to see you. Well, I don't quite see you. It's pretty dark, man. <laughs> yes. It's cold blackout. <laughs> he cooks dinner under a flashlight. Nice. Without power, he grills fresh meat over a propane flame. Because he never needs to freeze meat straight from the butcher, hamburgers and fries are on the menu. His club, which shows plays and jazz shows, is still operating, despite less than reliable power in the city. He hasn't made a profit since the war began. Regional officials say the local economy has shrunk 40% in that time frame. But Trofimov says businesses and entrepreneurs like himself somehow keep managing. City does not give up. So something working, even on generators, you can always find a good shawarma on the street easily. During the total blackout, without even, as I told you, internet connection, mobile connection, but you can find the very big shawarmas working in very big generators and lots of people standing on the streets. Some businesses have adjusted by finding clients and customers outside Ukraine. I won't say that a lot of businesses like closed or vanished. That's marketing consultant Artem Dorokov. I think most of them, you know, they reinvented themselves. Odessa's ports were central to the local economy, but they were shuttered in February due to the threat of waiting Russian warships. The vast majority of port traffic is still blocked, stranding people like Nick Viknansky, who owns a furniture manufacturing business and needs imported materials. We changed the, our logistics. Now we use the Romanian ports, Turkish ports, and then our trucks, and we work. 
meaning he now gets his wood over land through other countries. He says that costs more than how it used to be, but he's cutting costs elsewhere to make it up. And the tourism industry, which is also vital to the economy in Odessa, it's struggling, but it's also adapting. Arthur Lupashko, CEO of the Ribas Hotel Group, says many of his guests are now internally displaced people fleeing the war. He says his hotels, 26 in all of Ukraine, including 10 in Odessa, have managed to turn a profit this year. The apartment-style rooms that we own are still filled with people. The port is still operating somehow. Business is still ongoing. Even the curfew helps us a bit because people don't have the ability to move freely during the night. But local officials say there will be a day when people can. And in a sign of confidence, the Odessa government is pressing forward with its bid to host the World's Fair in 2030, a bid it submitted before the war began. Roman Krechoreshin, the deputy head of the Odessa government, says the war has shown the world what Ukraine can do creating a world-renowned brand. The main important thing which we as, as government must to provide after the war is to, to transfer this brand to new investment, to new working place. After all, one thing is clear. The southern port city has shown it can adapt. Tim Mack, NPR News, Odessa. Big names in the tech industry, including Meta, Lyft, HP, and Amazon, have been laying off workers by the hundreds or even thousands. Daniel Kiem is an assistant professor of management at Columbia Business School. A. Martinez asked Kiem what he thinks is behind the wave of tech layoffs. There are about three, four drivers, I think, uh, that people are talking about. I think the most immediate one is that um, they're right-sizing their growth. They were very aggressive in forecasting their future growth through the pandemic years but the growth didn't materialize. I think the second part is, um, and this is, this is something people talk about a little less, is that usually there's a natural rate of turnover, either by companies finding the poor fit from the employees or employees finding the poor fit with the company. In the past uh, eight months or so, when we're, people were talking about great resignation, it was employees finding employers, oh, you're not a great fit for me. So a lot of people are quitting and looking for something different. What we were seeing in the past one month it's actually the other, the flip side of the dynamic, where employers are finding with employees, oh, you're not a great fit for us. Is that more or less what we're seeing with Amazon as well? So there's an additional layer to Amazon, if you ask me. Um, so if you look at where the layoffs are taking place, it's, it's actually quite uneven. So even within Amazon, most of the layoffs are concentrated in their devices business. In the past decade, if you look at the tech companies, they're actually tech empires. They're actually spread across many different lines of businesses, across many different products. They started with their one or two core lines of businesses that made them massively successful. And those lines of businesses have grown to maturity. And these tech companies wanted to look for new engines of growth. So what's the next big thing? Amazon is one of those companies that bet very heavily on devices. And these devices haven't really panned out. Or, I mean, they're not doing terribly. It's just that compared to their existing success, Given all the uncertainty right now, they feel that it's time to pull back so that when the uncertainty resides, they can come out swinging. Are there any lessons to be learned? I mean, we're talking about the tech industry here, uh, Professor, but I mean, is there any lessons to be learned for other industries to uh, not maybe go down the same path as tech companies on this? I, I think everybody needs to be careful in who they hire and how they hire. Make sure that the people you're hiring, um, labor has gotten a lot more expensive. People you're hiring are the right fit for you because sometimes companies fall into the uh, 
the vicious cycle of uh, training people, they leave. You hire new people and you train them, they leave. And people who want to stay on, they get tired of training new people. And what about the laid off workers? Uh, what are their prospects going forward? Again, losing a job is a deadly event and it's, we should not uh, talk about this lightly. But these are the most highly trained and most highly sought after uh, talents in the world. Most of them are able to find a new job within three months or so. Was it a mistake looking back to try to aggressively expand when we didn't really know what the pandemic was going to bring? And the pandemic's still going on. But I mean, con considering that we didn't know much about anything back when all this expansion started, was it a mistake to project this aggressively into the future? I mean, managers want to grow. <laughs> it's, it's their first instinct. So, I mean, there was, there was more strategic consideration behind that. The fear was, if we don't grow, someone else will. That's Daniel Kuhn, professor of management at Columbia Business School. Professor, thanks. Thanks for a great set of questions. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, President Biden is voicing his full support for Brazil's president as that country arrests hundreds of rioters for invading its Congress. It's 820. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. ChatGPT is one of the most sophisticated AI chatbots ever released. A high school teacher says it writes better than some students. There was a paragraph of eight sentences, and it was a mess. And I took that paragraph, and I put it into ChatGPT, and ChatGPT made it shine. But what happens when we can't tell the difference between computer and human-generated writing? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy skies gradually clear today for a sunny day with a high near 38. Right now it's 38 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. Brazilian authorities are investigating the origins of Sunday's attacks in the capital of Brasilia. The images, eerily similar to the January 6th attacks in the United States, showed thousands of supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro storming government buildings, beating a mounted police officer. Brazil's newly elected leader, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, accused the rioters of trying to overthrow democracy. And he blamed Bolsonaro for encouraging the violence with speeches and lies about Bolsonaro's election loss. For more, I'm joined by former U.S. Ambassador to Brazil, Michael McKinley. Good morning, Ambassador. Good morning, Leila. So I want to start with the democratic institutions in Brazil. This is the fourth largest democracy in the world. After these attacks, are these institutions in real jeopardy now? I don't think so. In fact, Brazilian democracy over the last 38 years since it was restored has gone from strength to strength. And uh, you've seen mature, complex institutions evolve with a strong judiciary, Supreme Court, uh, with a very active, powerful Congress, executive branch that works, uh, incredibly free media environment, active civil society. And so while this assault is definitely of concern, uh, I don't think there should be uh, serious questions about Uh, what happens to Brazilian democracy going forward. I would suggest that the events since Lula was elected uh, on October 30th in the second round of presidential elections, and to include a peaceful inauguration on January 1st, attended by up to 300,000 people and 17 heads of state from around the world, actually uh, demonstrated that despite very uh, strong polarization in the society, Uh, It did not uh, succumb to some of the tensions we saw after our November election in uh, 2020, which culminated in January 6th with a very direct concerted effort to overturn U.S. elections involving a president, senators, uh, congressional representatives, uh, state and election officials. Uh, what happened, though, is of great concern. But what there was concern around was the, the law enforcement and whether they were sympathetic military walking with protesters to um, these buildings. Brazilian security forces, like security uh, in most countries, uh, is layered. And so uh, what was in evidence, uh, at least uh, so far, is questions about the commitment of the federal district, that is the capital police of Brasilia, to prevent the crowds from reaching uh, the three key buildings, the presidential palace, the Congress, and the Supreme Court. Uh, Fewer questions have been raised about uh, the armed forces, for example, or the national police. And within hours, uh, just as in uh, Washington on January 6th, the protesters uh, were cleared We've seen up to 1,500 people already detained. There were a series of encampments around the country outside of military barracks and uh, official buildings. And uh, within 24 hours of what happened on January 8th, there has been a concerted effort uh, to remove these encampments from around, uh, which were protests, peaceful protests, calling for uh, military intervention, uh, were all removed or are in the stage of being removed to include in uh, the most important state in Brazil, Sao Paulo, 
where a governor who's seen as sympathetic and allied uh, with Bolsonaro has been very firm in condemning what happened on January 8th and Mm -hmm. moving to uh, take action against uh, any of these protests uh, uh, that have been taking place around the country over the last many weeks. So I would suggest that there should be less concern about the loyalty of the security forces. But again, what happened raises a lot of concerns. Now, President Biden spoke with President De Silva yesterday and expressed his support. What kind of support should or can the U.S. extend, especially when it hasn't figured out how to tackle this exact problem at home? Actually, uh, what we've seen is the United States uh, since last year in the run-up to the election been strongly supportive of Brazilian elections with visits uh, by senior U.S. officials uh, during the campaign to say there was a, a real need for a democratic process to go forward. And since Lula's election, regular contact between President Biden, President Lula, phone calls, the Secretary Blinken uh, speaking with his counterpart shortly after the inauguration, invitation to the White House in February. I think a very strong relationship is in the process of being built up. Do you think this incident will affect the relationship between the U.S. and Brazil long term? It sounds like you think it's going to make it stronger. Um, I think it will. And in fact, uh, we've seen this relationship strengthening uh, because there are so many uh, tough issues on the global stage that need to be addressed from energy questions to food production, to dealing with China and trade, to regional tension points like Venezuela. And Brazil is a critical player on all of these questions and certainly on the key uh, geostrategic uh, global macroeconomic issues. Uh, potentially a central player in uh, finding uh, responses to the challenges we face. So I think, uh, and let me mention climate change, where uh, uh, Special Envoy John Kerry has already uh, signaled his interest in working strongly with Brazil. And uh, President-elect Lula at the time was in uh, the uh, Cairo Climate Summit, emphasizing that his government uh, would take the issue very seriously going forward. There's plenty to work with. Former U.S. Ambassador to Brazil, Michael McKinley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the recent budget bill didn't increase funding for the Office of Federal Student Aid, possibly putting the Biden administration's student loan reforms at risk. It's 829. A quick reminder to keep listening to WBUR throughout the day for the latest news. It's easy with the WBUR mobile app, or you can always visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
Authorities in California say stormy weather is now blamed for at least 14 deaths since late last month. More heavy rains, strong winds, and mountain snows are expected today across much of the state. The National Weather Service has posted advisories, watches, and warnings over a wide area. Additional flooding is possible. A new report shows carbon emissions in the U.S. rose again last year. As NPR's Lauren Summer reports, that's a change from 2020. The pandemic led to a big drop in emissions in 2020, about 10 percent, as industrial activity slowed down and people traveled less. But since then, emissions have bounced right back. According to a new report from the think tank The Rhodium Group, emissions rose more than 6 percent in 2021 and then 1.3 percent in 2022. That means the U.S. is still heading in the opposite direction of its goal to cut emissions in half by 2030. Still, experts say that could change as major tax credits roll out this year from the Inflation Reduction Act. The credits are designed to cut emissions by helping Americans get solar panels, electric cars and heat pumps for their homes. Lauren Summer, NPR News. Climate change, migration and border security are expected to be discussed today in Mexico City, where President Biden is attending the North American Leaders Summit. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Performance reports for anesthesiologists at Massachusetts General Hospital now include numbers tied to climate change. As WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports, it's part of an effort to make the hospital greener. The gases that put you to sleep before surgery or wake you up after trap heat in the atmosphere. Some are much worse than others. So MGH is showing doctors and nurses how they compare to peers on gas choice and the quantity used. Dr. Sam Smith, who helped design the project, says patients get the same quality care. There's probably no other specialty that can make such a dramatic impact with so little change or or effort or just attention to something. Mass General is focused on anesthetic gases because they represent more than 40 percent of the hospital's greenhouse gas emissions. MGH uses electricity from renewable sources, primarily wind. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Boston police say they received and ignored 12 federal requests to detain people on immigration charges last year. City regulations block police and other agencies from cooperating with various federal immigration enforcement requests. Those regulations were put in place in 2015. In an annual report, Police Commissioner Michael Cox writes that the regulations allow police to build relationships with immigrant communities. That report was obtained by the Boston Herald. Recreational marijuana sales begin today in another of Massachusetts's neighbors, Connecticut. Nine dispensaries will open today with more on the way. As part of the legalization, nearly 45,000 low-level cannabis convictions have been erased from criminal records in the state. Recreational pot use is legal in Massachusetts and all of its neighbors except for New Hampshire. But New Hampshire has decriminalized pot. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family. Starts January 21st, MRT.org. The Celtics have now won three games in a row. They beat the Chicago Bulls 107-99 to last night at the Garden. The season's next game is tomorrow at home against the New Orleans Pelicans. Skies will clear throughout the day today, and by this afternoon, we should see some sun. The high will be in the upper 30s. Tonight, cloudy with a low in the mid-20s. 
Tomorrow, partly cloudy. The high will be in the mid-30s. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. The Biden administration is unveiling a generous new student loan repayment plan today. Most current and new federal student loan borrowers will be eligible for the plan, and it could especially help low-income borrowers. But there's a catch. The agency tasked with implementing the plan might not have the money to pay for it. That's right. NPR's education correspondent Corey Turner joins us. He's been covering this story. First, Corey, good morning. And what can you tell us about this new repayment plan from the Biden administration? Yeah, good morning, Dwayne. It is a big rewrite of a previous plan that will mean $0 loan payments for anybody who earns less than $30,000 a year. Uh, Folks who borrow $12,000 or less would receive loan forgiveness after 10 years of payments. That's new. Uh, Borrowers will also no longer see interest explode their balances over time. But there are two challenges to this rollout. One, uh, the regulatory rewrite process could take some time, you know, well into 2023. And two, there is the cost to implement it, which is unclear. What is clear is when the plan does roll out, the Office of Federal Student Aid is going to have to cut something else to pay for it. Yeah, uh, unclear, uh, the cost to implement. So why is that? Why doesn't the federal government have the money? So the Office of Federal Student Aid, or FSA, it's a really small agency, relatively speaking, but it has a Herculean job of managing the U.S. government's entire federal student loan portfolio. And it's in a sudden budget crisis. I spent the past few weeks talking about this with officials across government who were not authorized to talk to me. Eight people in all. We talked about how this happened and how officials at FSA are right now behind closed doors, really frustrated and scrambling to figure out how to cut hundreds of millions of dollars in spending. And what happened, Dwayne, is that last month, when Congress and the White House agreed on this massive government funding bill for 2023, the omnibus, Mm -hmm. there was a fight over FSA's budget. So sources tell me while Republican negotiators did float a roughly 20% increase for FSA, Mm -hmm. they wanted the White House to put in writing that the money would not be spent on implementing the big debt relief plan that's currently on hold at the Supreme Court, just in case the court allows it to proceed. The problem is, according to Democrats, both sides had agreed not to add new conditions like this to the omnibus. They're called riders. So when Republicans insisted on a debt relief rider anyway, Democrats said, look, you agreed to the deal. No new riders. We're sticking to it. What matters most to borrowers in the end? They failed to compromise, and FSA did not get a dollar more than the budget amount they got last year. Wow. Corey, we're talking about the Office of Federal Student Aid, or FSA. As it relates to them cutting to save money, where are we at there? 
Yeah, so FSA can find a way to pay for this big, ambitious new repayment plan, but borrowers could and will see cuts or delays to other student loan reforms supposed to happen this year. You know, there's a big review and update of millions of borrower records in July that could be delayed. It's currently revamping the FAFSA student aid form to make it easier for families to complete. That's probably untouchable. There could be a delay in new contracts for loan servicers. I'm also hearing basic functions could be hit. You know, borrowers might spend a lot more time on the phones. That's uh, NPR's Corey Turner. Thanks, Corey. You're welcome, Dwayne. A federal oil and gas lease sale in Alaska held just before the new year got a lot of pushback from environmental groups. But in the end, the sale was kind of a dud. Sabine Pooks with member station KDLL in Kenai, Alaska, has been following this story. She joins us now to talk about what the results say about the energy industry overall. Sabine, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. First, tell us, why is oil and gas development in this part of the Gulf of Alaska that borders Anchorage and Kenai Peninsula so controversial? Yeah, well, Cook Inlet's home to salmon and an endangered species of beluga whale, and it's a really important ground for fishing in Alaska. It's also the state's oldest producing oil and gas field. And some say the discoveries there in the 1950s actually paved the way for Alaska to become a state in the first place. And the federal government has held lease sales in the inlet since the 70s, when the field was at its peak. There was a lot of buildup at the end of last year when the sale came up. What happened? Well, in the end, not much. The Department of the Interior offered up a million acres, but just one oil and gas company actually bid on a few thousand acres for nearly $64,000. And that wasn't a huge surprise. Uh, Hillcorp Alaska has been the only bidder in sales there for a while. And oil and gas production in the inlet has historically stayed within state waters anyway. Those are the waters that are closer inland. So it was highly unlikely that there was going to be any new discovery there. What does this sale say about the future of oil leases in Alaska? Well, in some ways, Alaska's pretty unique. Uh, it's always been expensive to produce oil and gas here, and the bigger companies left the inlet a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But the hesitancy to invest in new projects isn't specific to Alaska. According to Mark Squalachi, he's a professor in natural resource law at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he says offshore development is expensive and it's time-intensive, And that might be worth it in the short term for some companies, since the war in Ukraine has so drastically increased energy demand and raised prices. But Squalachi says development is a long game, and companies might be doubtful their investments will stand the test of time as renewables become more and more popular, no matter who's in office. Even if the Democrats were to lose the White House in 2024, I think it's going to be very difficult to change the direction that the country is going in now in terms of moving toward a more sustainable kind of uh, energy environment. Scalacci expects that uncertainty to discourage new investment in the lower 48, too, like in the Gulf of Mexico. Companies there are having to drill deeper to get to the oil and gas, which means it's more expensive to do so. And they might decide it's just not worth it. Sabine, didn't the Biden administration say they were going to walk back this issue of oil and gas leases? If that's the case, why do they continue to come up for sale. Yeah, they did. And they actually tried to cancel this sale multiple times, but it became a bit of a political football in Washington, D.C. Last session, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, uh, they made sure Congress couldn't pass a bill focused on renewable energy and climate without these sales included in it. 
And that's why the Biden administration couldn't cancel the cook and let sale, because it became part of what's known as the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, Sabine, with all that said, what happens next for the oil and gas lease in Cook Inlet? Yeah, well, Hillcorp still has to jump through some hoops before it can actually look for oil and gas on that lease. And even then, it's unlikely they'll find anything noteworthy there at all. Still, these lease sales aren't going to stop anytime soon. Just don't hold your breath that there will be that many companies placing bids for fossil fuel leases in the inlet or anywhere else. Thanks, Sabine. You're welcome. That's Sabine Pooks with member station KDLL in Kenai, Alaska. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Prince Harry's controversial memoir, Spare, goes on sale today, detailing his reaction to his mother's death and his conflicts with his brother. It'll gradually become sunny today and we'll have temperatures in the upper 30s. Some clouds move in tonight and it falls to the mid-20s. Partly sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. A chance of rain and snow on Thursday in the upper 40s. Right now it's 38 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Now in business news, Marlboro-based Whole Logic says its diagnostic testing revenue was down 41 percent in the first quarter of the fiscal year. The medical technology company points to an overall decrease in COVID testing for the loss. Its CEO says excluding COVID, the company's diagnostics and surgical businesses experienced double-digit growth. Rockland Trust Bank is getting a new CEO. Jeffrey Tengel will step into the role next month. He most recently was the senior executive vice president of M&T Bank. He'll take over for Chris Odleifson, who served as Rockland's CEO for 20 years. A new BYOB bar will open in Coolidge Corner, Brookline, next month. Barlette will provide seasonal cocktail mixers, glassware, and ice for guests. They just have to bring in their own booze. The bar is reservation only, and a ticket will include a four-course menu of bar snacks. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, they are so revered as abolitionists and suffragists that former Mayor Marty Walsh named a Hyde Park Bridge after them. But the Grimke sisters have a complicated history with wealth derived from slavery and black nephews who revived the family legacy. Historian Carrie Greenidge on the real story of the Grimke sisters. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. Britain's Prince Harry and his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, have been generating a lot of te- attention lately through a streaming documentary series and high-profile TV interviews. And today, the Prince's memoir, Spare, is out. Martin Pangali is a reporter with The Guardian. He obtained a copy of the book before publication, and he's with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So with all we've heard from Prince Harry, any big revelations left in this book? I don't think there are now. Um, It's been thoroughly uh, gutted before publication. We published um, two very small excerpts, but copies went on sale in Spain, and the British press all have Spanish speakers and Spanish uh, reporters, so they took it to pieces. Then there were the two interviews, and then there's been now what, um, about 11 hours it's been on sale in England. So judging from my research this morning, it's pretty much all out there. Yeah. Why is Prince Harry choosing this moment to share these intimate details of his of his life, of his private life, his family's life? Uh, he left the royal family, basically, with Meghan Markle, his wife, uh, the actor. And it's a, it's hard to say what it is. It's a sort of uh, a howl in a way. It's a bit like primal scream therapy. He talks... Mm in the book extensively about therapy and it in some senses feels like that. This is a fairly blistering um, howl of, of rage. But at, there's at also everything. a lot of money attached to this project. Yes, the, I, think, I think the dollar total of the book deal is 20 million, mm. I think. It's for more than one book, I think. But um, yes, there's a lot of money attached to it. There's a lot of uh, a lot riding on it. It's gone to the top of all the bestseller charts. How long it stays there is probably the next test. Now, right now, as of now, we haven't heard anything from the royal family. They've been silent. Why? They very rarely comment. Um, I saw Anderson Cooper mentioning that uh, for the CBS 60 Minutes interview, um, the palace said they would only comment if they were shown the entire interview first before broadcast, which, of course, CBS didn't do. Mm. Um, It's one of the themes of the book that Harry is at odds with his brother William and his father, now King Charles, about how to deal with the press. Charles says, don't talk to them, don't read it, which Harry's uh, <laughs> seems to be incapable of doing and which he um, says his father doesn't do either. One of the themes of the book is about how various members of the royal family uh, try to shape press coverage and sometimes direct press coverage against others, according to Harry. Now, this book and what it reveals, could there be a long-standing impact on Britain's royal family and the institution of the monarchy? Some people think so. I've been reading a lot of coverage from, back from, I have to say, back home, I'm still British, um, <laughs> who uh, a lot of people think it will be dangerous. I think one of Charles's biographers was in The Guardian yesterday saying very much that this could help remove um, some of the mystery. The Queen's death certainly was, if not damaging, it wouldn't, you wouldn't say damaging, but could have done that. But I think this book will add to the lack of mystery uh, that is the mystery that is peeling away, as it were, from the royals. Whether it will change uh, the royal family standing is another question, because England is a conservative place. Martin Pengeli is a reporter with The Guardian. He uh, obtained a copy of Prince Harry's book before publication. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Dwayne Brown. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, if you bought a lot of stuff during the pandemic and now are considering throwing it all out, the Marketplace Morning Report has reasons to think twice before you do that. And coming up at noon today, it's Here and Now, and Robin Young is here in <laughs> studio to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi there. Nice to see you. Yeah. And uh, lots going on today. We will take a closer look at the uh Documents that were found in an office that uh, President now President Biden had when he was vice president, mm-hmm. they were um, secret documents. They were immediately sent to the National Archives. It is not at all equivalent to the documents that were found in uh, former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Being made, the yeah. comparisons being made and questions are being raised. So we'll take a, a deeper look at that. And then I know that yesterday you were reporting on this new study that shows that 15 percent of childhood asthma's uh, cases in in this state, Massachusetts, are being traced to gas stoves. Yeah. Well, now Bloomberg is reporting that the Consumer Product Safety Commission, this is the National Federal Commission, is considering a ban on gas stoves because of their connection to asthma in kids. So we're, of course, going to take a, a closer look at that. We're going to meet some uh, people who were schooled at Harvard, uh, went on to huge careers, and have now opened uh, a school in Bangladesh for women from countries where education has been banned. Of Mm. course, that's most recently Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. and they're seeing an influx of women, 17,000 applications they have for this school in Bangladesh, and we'll talk to them uh, about, you know, the importance of educating women and how they are, you know, negotiating, trying to negotiate with the Taliban to get these women out of the country and into their school. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. That's at noon. All right. Sounds great. Thank you, Robin. Mm -hmm. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. The saying goes that all politics is local, but in school board elections around the country, a nationwide agenda dominated hyper-local politics last year. The amount of misinformation coming down from the big mega groups worked as intended in many places. How that agenda played out in both Florida and Minnesota. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Clouds will slowly move away and will gradually see some sun today. Temperatures will top out right about where they are right now in the upper 30s. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 8.52. A report finds the U.S. is way off track for its climate goals. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Renewables are now outpacing coal for energy in America. Now, that said, a new report also finds the U.S. is not even close to meeting emission reduction targets meant to avoid climate catastrophes. Marketplace's Nova Safo has looked at the report and joins us now. Nova? Yeah, David, this research is coming from the Rhodium Group, which is a research organization that studies environmental issues, among other things. And what they've put out is a preliminary estimate based on how much we believe the economy grew last year. The assumption is GDP growth was 1.9%, and the group says based on that growth, carbon emissions likely rose 1.3%. So we just managed to squeak by with less emissions than economic growth, and that's good in that the economy became less carbon intensive. That's the silver lining here. Well, what accounts for this? Well, as you mentioned, coal is the big thing. Uh, We're burning less of it to generate electricity, about 8% less. 
according to the Rhodium Group. We replaced coal with more natural gas-powered electricity generation, which sends less carbon into the atmosphere. And the biggest change is renewable power sources. They rose 12% last year compared to 2021. In fact, so much so that the U.S. got more energy from renewable sources than it did from coal for the first time in 60 years. Really for the first time ever, David, but technically in the 1960s, hydropower gave us more electricity than burning coal did. Hmm. So why does the study think we're not going to make these targets by the end of this decade? Right, the emissions targets, because we're not moving fast enough. Emissions aren't going down as much as they need to. The Rhodium Group says the Inflation Reduction Act could help. It has funding for clean energy, but we need to speed things up even more than that with more aggressive regulations. Nova Safo, thank you. Stock in the space company Virgin Orbit is down 21% now after something went wrong with Britain's first attempt to launch a satellite into orbit last night. The rocket launched horizontally as intended from a converted 747 aircraft, but then some anomaly at or near orbit. Britain's business minister said today that they'll try again sometime. Markets Dow and S&P futures are each down half a percent now. The Federal Trade Commission is reportedly dusting off a nearly forgotten law from 1936 that stops suppliers from cutting better deals with big versus small retailers. Politico has sources saying the FTC is looking at whether Coca-Cola and Pepsi are engaging in illegal price discrimination, it's called. The Walmarts and Amazons of the world will be watching with interest as the Biden administration targets anti-competitive behavior that can hurt consumers. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance, providing direct car insurance rates side-by-side with other insurance carriers. Customers can see rates and find an option that works for their needs. Now that's Progressive. Learn more at Progressive.com. And by AcreTrader, providing a platform for U.S. investors to diversify with historically inflation-hedging alternative farmland assets. Learn more at AcreTrader.com. Is this the new year that you're going to get rid of all that junk? Today, three minutes to entertain the other side of the story. Journalist Rob Walker has written an op-ed piece in the New York Times arguing clutter is good. He's also co-author of a new book, Lost Objects, 50 Stories About the Things We Miss and Why They Matter. Rob, welcome. Thank you for having me. Rob, messy house, messy mind, good people wash their hands, good people declutter. You think clutter is good for you? In what way? Well, so this piece came about because of a couple of things, but the most relevant one was my mother, before she died, started sending me her clutter, basically. And uh, she had this collection of sort of bird figurines. And, you know, it made me think about the fact that I don't really want those, but you really enjoy them. So why not just continue to enjoy them for as long as you possibly can? And I just wanted to sort of put in a good word for maybe clutter that you really enjoy is something that you should hang on to. Well, help me understand this about your mom. I mean, we're wrestling with this, too. It's very clear that the older generation's stuff, the next generation's not interested, but yet you ended up with some of your mom's stuff and you're thinking it's okay to hold on to it? The point about this is that she really enjoyed this stuff. And one of the things that I enjoyed about her was her sort of confidence and clarity about her own taste. That's a feeling that should be honored. I'm not an advocate of just keeping everything forever. I'm an advocate of honoring the seemingly sort of, you know, hard to defend affection that we have for objects. And it's because 
those objects are connected to some time in our life. They're connected to a trip we took. They're connected to a person we met. They're connected to a feeling we had. And that is more meaningful in terms of our relationship to materialism than, you know, buying the hottest new iPhone. That's the thing, right? Because a subtle reading of the cultural trend toward decluttering is that you're not supposed to throw everything out. You should save the stuff that's meaningful. Yeah. And I think that just sort of culturally, we've swung a little bit in the last 10 years to a more minimalist aesthetic that I think demonizes anything that isn't easily defensible. And I was pleased to discover in the process of looking into this that there is a sort of counter movement. You know, inevitably it's hashtag clutter core, but it's younger people who are making videos of like, here's my extensive collection of dolls or toys or whatever. Some of it's a little over the top, but it's a reaction to the idea of the minimal aesthetic that everything looks like kind of a hotel room isn't very expressive. And it's not necessarily needing to be expressive to other people. It's needing to just sort of be comfortable with your own expression of yourself and be surrounded by things that mean something to you. I realize that this could possibly tip into this hoarder culture. I'm not advocating that, but I think that there's a middle ground that has been given short shrift in recent years, and I wanted to speak up for it. Rob Walker is a journalist. He wrote a piece in the New York Times op-ed section, Clutter is Good for You. Rob, thanks. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Above my desk at home is an enamel inlaid chrome nameplate from a 1966 Chevy El Camino. I've never owned an El Camino, probably never will, but I like it. My daughter gave it to me and it is not going anywhere. Our producers are Katie Barnfield, James Graham, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Skies clear throughout the day today, and we should eventually see some sun. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. The clouds come back tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and mid-30s. A chance of rain and a little snow on Thursday in the upper 40s. We'll reach the 50s on Friday, but there's a chance of rain. It's 38 degrees in Boston. We're coming up at 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. ChatGPT is one of the most sophisticated AI chatbots ever released. A high school teacher says it writes better than some students. There was a paragraph of eight sentences, and it was a mess. And I took that paragraph, and I put it into ChatGPT, and ChatGPT made it shine. But what happens when we can't tell the difference between computer and human-generated writing? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.